welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your co-hosts, Katie Helper. And I'm Mary Mate. How are you, Katie? I'm good, you? I'm great. I'm great. What's going on? Not much. Any any new smears against you? Any new awards for being like the most in Putin's pocket or whatever you are? The most For being a, a Russian influencer? No. Yeah. No. Oh, Nothing wow. To How are you dealing with that? Yeah. It's a slow week, I guess. I know you do a lot of work around ego. Not getting attached, so that that must help. <laughs> My mindfulness practice must help me when I'm not being smeared. Well, when you're not in the news, when you're not yeah. being winning awards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I guess it does help. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm drinking a great cup of coffee, which has a little bit of lip gloss on it. But I wanted to share something, a little hack. Do you ever make coffee with the French press, Aaron? No. Now the problem is it's a little bit messy in terms of the grains the day after or. I should say right when you clean it right after. So I was doing that, pouring some of it into the sink, but then it was clogging the sink. You can't have that. So what I did is I now put it in the toilet. So your hack is putting the coffee grinds in the toilet. Yes. But I have to warn you that there's going to be a minute where you're doing that and you're looking into your toilet bowl and it looks terrible. Mm. So if you do do that, make sure you flush right away, mm. which I do. But imagine if you forgot to flush and someone comes into the toilet, into the bathroom later on, what did see? Yeah, that'd be terrible. Be Look, terrible. Uh, the toilet is an underrated repository. You know, right. you can get rid of a lot of, like, let's say you've left something in the fridge for way too long, right? And it's moldy, it's nasty. Right. You don't want to put it in your garbage can, put that in the toilet. It's, I guess it's true. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how solid it is, right? You can't put like a, an onion, a rotting onion in there. I've never tried that. No, yeah, never, never tried, tried that. that yeah. yeah. So guys, listen to us. Don't do a rotting onion. The last thing we want is to be sued for bad advice, which causes some kind of toilet explosion. That'd be terrible. Yes. Yeah. But that's your, that's the hack of the day. Well, thanks for that life hack, Katie. Yeah, I'll sure. be, uh, I'll be adding coffee grinds to the list of approved items that I can throw down the, the there toilet. There you go. The- yeah. Why don't we just change the name of the toilet to the garbage disposal? We should. That's actually true. You know? Yeah. Why well, can find the toilets just being so one-dimensional? Exactly. When it has so many potential outputs. Yeah. So, you know, lots of times we say that this is one of the best shows on earth. Well, I've stopped that. I haven't said it. I'm saying it now. But one of our strengths is that we're so multifaceted, much like a toilet. <laughs> That's actually a great way. Useful idiots, colon, a lot like a toilet. But uh, we give you life hacks. We give you sometimes fashion tips, pop culture reviews. So this is your one-stop shop for everything. It's your one-stop shop. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Should we go on with the less important things like politics? Let's do it. So what do we got for Democrats suck? So for Democrats suck, we're going to hear from both of our top elected officials. That's uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to see how they're doing with the issues of the day. As we're speaking, Biden is in Europe presiding over an expansion of NATO. And he has just announced uh, how that's going. So let's see what Joe Biden has to say. We're going to approve a new NATO strategic concept and uh, reaffirm the unity and determination of our alliance to defend every inch of NATO territory. And uh, Article 5 is sacrosanct. And we mean it when we say an attack against one is an attack against all, every inch. And so at this summit, uh, the full alliance is going to welcome Finland and Sweden, uh, their historic application for membership, and their decision to move away from neutrality and the tradition of neutrality to join NATO alliance is going to make us stronger and more secure, and NATO stronger. 
so that's Joe Biden. He's announcing that uh, Finland and Sweden are joining NATO, so NATO will get even bigger. He's also announcing, Katie, that U.S. troops are going to be permanently stationed in Poland as part of a ramp-up of the U.S. military presence in Europe. And I just love that, that you know Biden's response to a war in Ukraine that partly results from the expansion of NATO to Russia's borders is to expand NATO even more. And uh, this is what Democrats have been roped into is, you know, justifying policies that mean even more U.S. troops are going to be sent abroad and permanently being stationed in places like Poland. So just great that we have uh, Democrats leading the charge and ramping up militarism around the world. But meanwhile, Biden also during his trip has had a few slip of the tongues where he's actually disclosed what is really going on with his policies. And this is something that he said uh, during his trip to Europe about what U.S. troops and NATO mean for Russia. But the bottom line is this. Together, the alliance is threatening its posture, is dealing with the threats and strengthening our posture against the threats from the east and challenges from the south. So Biden slipped up there. He said about Russia, we are threatening its posture. And then he corrects himself and says, oh, no, we are defending ourselves against Russian threats. But really, the gaffe was the truth, because this is what is a major cause of this crisis in Ukraine, is an expanding NATO to Russia's borders and using Ukraine as a NATO proxy, essentially, against Russia. And that was Biden with a characteristic slip of the tongue revealing what NATO really is for. It's to threaten Russia's posture. All right. And meanwhile, let's go to the home front. You know, so much attention now is once again being put on the expansion of NATO and also uh, the January 6th hearings. But meanwhile, Democrats are having to deal with this crisis over the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And let's see how Kamala Harris is handling it. What do you say to Democratic voters who argue, wait a minute, we worked really hard to elect a Democratic president yeah. and vice president, yeah. Democratic-led House, yeah. a Democratic-led Senate. Do it now. But do what now? Uh, what now? I mean, we, we need, we, listen, what we did, we extended the child tax credit for the well, first I'm year. I'm sorry, when I say right? do what, yeah. do it now, yeah. act uh, legislatively to make abortion rights legal. We feel the same way. It, do it now. Congress needs to do it now in terms of permanently putting in place a, a, a clear indication that it is the law of the land that women have the ability and the right to make decisions about their reproductive care, and the government does not have the right to make those decisions for a woman. If Kamala becomes a Democratic nominee in 2024, which is a possibility if Biden doesn't run. I think that might be a good slogan for her, campaign slogan for her. Do what now? I have to add that that child tax credit, the irony about Kamala bragging about that is that that expired thanks to Joe Manchin. So they can't even point to that as they, they did extend the tax credit, but then that expired. So that's, it's so rich that they can't even point, they can point to attempts at doing something that were then thwarted by Joe Manchin. And of course, if they had any gumption or any political conviction or any political will, they would use their significant power as vice president and president to whip uh, Joe Manchin <clears throat> into shape. Yeah. Anyway, so that's Democrats suck. Well, they definitely do suck. So well done. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. I got I got Republican suck, and for Republican suck, uh, let's see, we got we got something. I mean, you know, Aaron, we talk a lot about how uh, the bombshell notifications that we get from time to time about the January six hearings amount to nothing or amount to little. I feel like I don't want to disappoint our viewers and listeners, but there's we did have a kind of surprise hearing which included uh, testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, who is the former aide to Trump's White House. Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and I, I feel like this had some gems in it. So let's take a look. I remember looking at him saying, "Rudy, could you explain what's what's happening on the six? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, "We're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it." I was, in the, I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president... Reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall. So what do you think, Aaron? Any Republicans suck there or just boring? Boring? None, yeah. You didn't like any of it? What boring. about this? that one didn't have there was a great moment where she talked about ketchup on the wall. Yes. What Trump about that? Apparently got upset that Bill Barr did disputed his stupid election fraud claims and so he threw some food against the wall, and then there was ketchup on the wall. Great. Wow. All right, fine. <laughs> wow, so I'm on the edge of my seat. She heard it secondhand, hand. and the people involved are apparently saying that it's not true. And that's what I object to. Look, everyone knows that Trump's election thing was crazy. It was nuts, and it caused a riot. He did incite a riot. He was impeached for it. I think he should have been impeached, but yeah. the fact that we're still talking about it now the fact that there are these ongoing hearings where people are pretending as if this is like akin to Watergate and there's some explosive bombshell being produced to me is just a joke, especially with all the horrible things going on right now. 
when meanwhile the world is burning around us and right. that's the problem i have with it uh all right well then can i have a second can i have a second chance to be redeemed and sure. watch uh yes, rudy sir. giuliani we have to talk about the slap scene around new york city former new york city mayor rudy giuliani slapped on the back inside of a shop right on staten island in the video you can see the employee do that and then walk away all right so i just want people who are listening only to understand what 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 is captured on this black and white footage it's a a pat on i mean to me it looks like a pat on the back maybe at worst what would you describe that uh, the, what's the most aggressive word you could use that applies to that that's definitely not a slap it's not a slap right it's a pat on the back hi david yeah well rui giuliani had so much to say about this slap that he actually held two news conferences today he's upset that that store employee who touched him is only facing a misdemeanor and he hit me to knock me down now if that doesn't merit you jail time in new york we got the Wild West here. A woman shoulder to shoulder with the former New York City mayor when it happened says that the Republican was targeted. That woman, there's a woman in the store who looks like a real teacher's pet, like suck up. The second after it happens that he gets slapped in the back, patted on the back, she starts rubbing his back. She's wearing a Guns N' Roses t-shirt. Yes, she is wearing a Guns N' Roses t-shirt too, which is, which I guess she should get some credit for. But but it is funny. She's there like to 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 provide solace for Rudy Giuliani. This It's a little suspicious that she's right there. I wonder if she was stalking Giuliani. She may be a Rudy stalker. <laughs> you know, like if someone came to my rescue like, seconds after I got pat on the back, I'd actually be more afraid of the of the <laughs> rescuer, of the pet, of the... The rubber. She was rubbing his back. Mm. You know, she was doing a, a rub. All right, so let's hear what this this Giuliani stalker has to say. And said to him, "Hey, you." It's funny. She says, "Hey, you," and then she lip syncs, "Fucking scumbag." But they bleep out scumbag. Do you really need to bleep out scumbag? But I'm telling you, it, it was a it was a very very heavy shot. Now I'm 78 years old. I'm pretty good shape for a 78 year old. The most dangerous thing for elderly people is to fall. You think I worry about this little punk? I worry about this little punk for you. Because if he can come and hit me, a 70 year old man, next thing he does is going to hit you. He just lied, Giuliani. He said it caused him to stumble. I don't know. Does he not realize that there's literal footage of him which does not show him stumbling? It doesn't look like he's stumbling at all. I will say, though, I am sympathetic to the argument that you really should not hit or slap or pat a right. 78 year old. You know, we, we do have to respect our elderly, even if it's Rudy Giuliani. Right. Yeah. All right. So for isn't that weird? We have a story from The Guardian in the realm of technology. The story is called Amazon's Alexa could turn dead loved ones voices into digital assistant. Amazon plans to let people turn their dead loved ones voices into digital assistants with the company promising the ability to make the memories last. The company is developing technology that will allow its Alexa digital assistant to mimic the voice of anyone it hears from less than a minute of provided audio. While no timescale was given for the launch of the feature, the underlying technology has existed for several years. The company gave a demonstration where the reanimated voice of an older woman was used to read her grandson a bedtime story. After he asked Alexa, can grandma finish reading me the wizard of Oz? Well, that's weird. That's weird. That's weird. You know, someone gets an Alexa and they want to be, 
reminded of uh, a meeting they have or to, uh, I don't know, take out the trash or something. And it's all of a sudden their dead relative. Right. I mean, that, that if they wanted it to be. If they wanted it to be, yes. Yeah. That would be really weird if they just subjected you to dead people's voices. Very yeah. triggering. Very and if it was like random, so yeah. Alexa just randomly became different deceased people in your life, yeah. that would be uh, freaky. Yeah, that would not be good. That would be, isn't that terrible? Luckily, mm -hmm. this is just, isn't that weird? Do you think you would ever use that? No. <laughs> no, right? No. I mean, no. it is sweet to think of a boy who wanted, I guess, his dead grandmother to keep reading The Wizard of Oz to him. You know, I believe in the old-fashioned way of mourning where you just accept life person, without yeah. the people who you love. That's just that's just life. And to try, try to digitally recreate them, I don't know. Right. Sounds weird to me. Yeah. But I kind of feel like, do I want Bodhi's when it's her time, which I honestly really do not like thinking about. Mm. I didn't grow up with pets, so I didn't grow up learning how to mourn pets. Would I want her little barking noises? Actually, Aaron, you could share. No, I don't want to put you on the spot, but maybe next week you can share how you're dealing with a certain pet extinction. Oh, my pal. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. How could I? Yes. Well, people might recall on a previous episode of You Study It, I talked about the dilemma I faced where my parents had this cat, Lucy, who was violent. She actually put my dad in the hospital because she bit him. I was advocating strongly that Lucy be put down, which they refused to do because uh, they were actually blaming themselves right. for Lucy's violence against them. But it turns out nature has, has worked its ways and Lucy recently passed. So we've lost Lucy. And guys, I just want to share that, you know, from what Aaron shared on the show, so I'm not, I'm not revealing anything, but it's very disturbing the, the type of victim blaming that Aaron's parents engaged in. I remember you said your father blamed himself for wearing shorts around yeah. her. Yeah. And you should never be saying about yourself or anyone else, I shouldn't have worn those shorts. Yeah. Yeah. So. But he also blames himself. He blames himself for provoking her. He claims that he provoked her. And, you know, it's, uh, look, the lengths that they went to to care for this cat and excuse this cat's violence is, right. it's admirable in some ways. But anyway. also, Katie, for the people just listening, can you describe Aaron trying to hide his grin as he said she passed away? <laughs> yeah. If you're just listening, he did have a victorious grin, as, as he said. I was worried for their safety. I was worried right. for their safety being in the same house as that cat. I was. Yeah. Well, for Isn't That Terrible, uh, I got a story that is pretty much my lane. I'm not going to lie. This is kind of my area of expertise. Uh, reading the headlines at, uh, at Yahoo News UK. So this comes from across the pond. Police officer sacked for touching colleagues' penis and shouting, it's a small one. A police officer has been sacked for touching a colleague's penis and shouting, it's a small one, before claiming he did it as quote-unquote banter. PC Adam Reed was dismissed from Wiltshire Police without notice after a five-day misconduct hearing that ended on Friday. He admitted he pulled down the probationary officer's trouser zip, inserted his hand to make contact with his penis, and shouted, it's a small one, in front of colleagues at a police station. Reed argued that it was banter and amounted, amounted to misconduct rather than gross misconduct, which would see him sacked, uh -huh, sacked. But a misconduct panel ruled, ruled that Reed's behavior was gross misconduct. He will now be placed on the national barred list, which will ensure he is not able to work in policing in the future. I don't know. What do you think, Aaron? I think it's a victory for men with uh, small penises everywhere. That and someone's finally being held to account. For, for teasing? <laughs> for teasing, yeah. 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 What do you think? Do you think he should have lost his job over this for this infraction? 
I mean, yes, but I don't, I don't like the lifelong bar. He's mm. like on a set. Is is that like being on a sex offender list? Like, can he not? Kind of, yeah. It is, except only towards cops. Yeah. So he could be a teacher. Sounds like he could be a teacher. Yeah. But it's not a cop. All right. What is crazy is, you know, we're talking about the police, which is a trade that often gives people a slap on the wrist for physically assaulting civilians or even killing them. That's true. But the lesson here is that one thing you cannot do if you're a police officer is, a slap is on insult the, the size of another police officer's penis. Right. Yeah. A slap on the penis gets you more than a slap on the wrist. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. You're in luck, guys, because not only do we have the four basic food groups, but we also have for you a stone moment. This is Dana Bash asking Kamala how she processed the news about the overturn of Roe v. Wade. When you think about it, in terms of what that means, in terms of democratic principles, in terms of the ideals upon which we were founded about liberty, about freedom, um, you know, I thought about it as, you know, a parent. We have two children who are in their 20s, a son and a daughter. I thought about it as a godparent of teenagers. I thought of it as an aunt of, of, of preschool children. And a woman yourself. And a woman myself. And the daughter of a woman. And a granddaughter of a woman. Erin, she thought of this as so many things including as a woman, as the daughter of a woman, as the granddaughter of a woman. She could have gone a lot further with that. As the great-granddaughter of a woman, as the great-great-great-granddaughter of a woman, as the niece of a woman, as the niece of a great-grand-grand-aunt woman. So many women. So that gives me so much comfort as a woman living in a country that has overturned my reproductive freedom, it's nice to know that Kamala Harris understands this on so many levels. Tough gig, man, to be vice president. It's a tough gig. When you're when you're feckless and don't do anything, yes. Yeah, I mean, you don't have any responsibilities. All you're doing is really exposing yourself constantly to ridicule and embarrassment. Right. She's so bad at it, too. She's bad. I mean, she's not Who very good at it. Who do you think's worse at it, her or Biden? Because with, Bi with her, she just looks like a robot, but she doesn't do the gaffes that Biden does because she's not saying anything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're both uniquely embarrassing. And that's what makes their chemistry mm. just so inspiring. Is right. They both have their unique way of embarrassing themselves. So that's our four basic food groups, stone moments with a side of coffee hacks and pet mortality tips. And we dedicate this episode to Lucy. Well, you can. I don't. <laughs> now we have a great interview for you. We are going to be talking to none other than Brianna Joy Gray, who is a journalist, the host of the Bad Faith podcast, a co-host at The Hills Rising, and the former press secretary for Bernard Sanders. You guys are definitely going to want to join the uh, Substack if you're not already subscribed, because we talk about potential um, candidates for 2024. We talk about the squad. We do a little ranking of the squad. Aaron and, and Brie have a kind of low key, I don't want to say a debate, a little bit of a debate on January 6th. I don't want to oversell it. Yeah, I'd say it's a robust exchange. A robust exchange. Yeah. yeah. No one throws food at anyone. There are no food, no food hits the wall whatsoever. Yeah. No ketchup. No ketchup on the walls. Yeah. Which you can get at usefulidiots.substack.com. All right, let's go to Brianna Joy Gray. We 
are so excited that you are making your Useful Idiots debut. It's long overdue, but welcome to the show. Thank you, Katie. You know, I was going to start taking it a little personally. No, <laughs> please don't. Well, I'm glad. Perfect timing. Right before you were going to start taking it personally, we got you on just in time. Very excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm a longtime listener. I abandoned a lot of my podcasts, you know, a year or so ago because it just became too much. But I never miss an episode of Useful Idiots. Well, we thank you. And and we would have had you on even if you had dropped us. So <laughs> well, maybe we would have taken, you, taken us a little longer to book you. But um, <laughs> we're so excited to talk to you. And there's so many things we could talk about with you. But I guess let's talk about, let's start off talking about what everyone's talking about, which is the Democrats' major, I was, I was going to say failure, but I actually don't think it's a failure. I think mm -hmm. it's intentional. So the way that Democrats have responded to the overturn of Roe v. Wade, what are your thoughts on that? As someone who not only was Bernie Sanders' press secretary, as someone who not only is a journalist, major political analyst, but also someone who is herself a jurist, by which I mean <laughs> you used to be a lawyer. I used to be a lawyer. Um, <clears throat> what do I think of the Democratic Party's response? What response would that be? <laughs> well, their, response, their lack thereof and the right. way that they're presenting it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's really frustrating. It seems evident now uh, perhaps some people anticipated it then that the leaked opinion at uh, the beginning of last month was a trial balloon and it served basically to let some of the steam, uh, let some of the wind out of the, out of the sails so that you wouldn't necessarily have as pointed a reaction as might otherwise have come from the public. If that wasn't the purpose, I think it has served that purpose to some extent, although we did see some protests getting kind of heated. They were knocking over cast members from Full House, which felt kind of extreme. But on the whole, what's really dispiriting is that the Democrats obviously knew this was coming for weeks and weeks now, and the most they've seemingly mustered is to have some carefully drafted campaign emails and texts that overwhelmed all of our phones over the course of the past week. And what has been actually heartening in this whole, ex whole experience is how ordinary Democrats, people who sometimes we on the left pejoratively describe as libs, are not falling for the okadoke this time and around. This seems to have been their tipping point. And I know most people by now have probably watched the video of those two young girls in front of the Supreme Court saying like, it is disrespectful to you that to us to just issue, you know, do donation requests at this moment when you haven't demonstrated an, abil an ability or even a willingness to do anything within your power to codify Roe, if not now, then under the Obama administration when he had a supermajority. Um, you can't even get the party to commit to getting rid of the filibuster if they do get the votes. You know, you had Kamala Harris giving this interview recently where she was being asked, you know, do you, would you commit to getting rid of the filibuster? And she says, well, we don't have the votes, but that sidesteps the point. If you did have the votes, you were asking us to, to get you more votes, to get you more votes in the Senate. Does that mean you promise to actually get rid of the filibuster if that happens? I would not be surprised if if that's a that's an empty promise, if that's not something that they actually are willing to commit to. Moreover, you know, for all that she's been criticized by the left, including by myself, AOC is one of the few people who came up with a list of tangible actions that could be taken, one of which was um, opening abortion clinics on federal lands in states where there are these trigger laws that have you know, constructively ended abortion rights immediately. And when asked about that, I think in the same interview, Kamala Harris says, no, 
basically because there's a midterm season coming up in 130 days and she's worried about the effects on the races in those states where uh, clinics may open up on federal lands. So the impotence of the party is nothing new to the left, but I'm actually heartened and almost, it's hard to say, it's tough to say I'm excited by it, but there is something almost reassuring about the idea that the coalition might grow in this moment because even the average Democrat realized how how feckless and impotent the party is. We actually have that, I have that video if you wanna watch it. Can the administration expand abortion access or abortion services on federal land, meaning provide the access on federal land that might be in and around states that ban abortion? I think that what is most important right now is that we ensure that the restrictions that the states are trying to put up um, that would prohibit a woman from exercising what we still maintain is her right, that we do everything we can to empower women to not only seek but to receive the care where it is available. Is federal land uh, one of those options? I mean, it's not right now what we are discussing, but I will say that when I think about what is happening in terms of the states, we have to also recognize, Dana, that we are 130 odd days away from an election, which is gonna include Senate races, right? Part of the issue here is that the court has acted, now Congress needs to act. But we, if you count the votes, don't appear to have the votes in the Senate. Well, there's an election happening in 130 odd days. I'm taking, for example, thinking of of a Senate race in Georgia or North Carolina. There's the Senate race coming up just in a couple weeks in Colorado. And we need to change the balance and have pro-choice legislators who have the power to make decisions about whether this constitutional right will be in law, right? We say codified, mm-hmm. put it in law so that there will be no ambiguity about it. And I want to ask you. So the argument being made is we're going to turn people out based on the idea that you need to elect Democrats to resolve uh, any barrier, you know, to get rid of any barrier states might throw up to accessing abortion rights. However, we are not going to address the issue of abortion restrictions by doing the thing that we can do and demonstrating why you should be fighting for Dems, which is opening up clinics in on federal lands in the estates. And this is the classic Democratic Party catch-22. They fundraise and hand-ring about vote blue no matter who, using the Supreme Court, the possibility of something like this happening as a stalking horse, but never, when they do have power, demonstrate any ability to actually act ostensibly because they believe that acting will scare away the moderate quote-unquote base that kind of doesn't even really exist. And so they just have this ratcheting effect where they lose, 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 lose people. There's fewer and fewer reasons to actually like the Democratic Party at all or to rely on them as a bulwark against right-wing extremism. And they're just left holding the back. What are some of the biggest things that the Democrats could have done and didn't or the biggest things they still could do and aren't doing, or the most kind of uh, shameful things that they've done in this area? Well, I mean, there's a whole bristling online argument going on about whether or not Barack Obama should have codified Roe. And his defenders would say that he didn't technically have the votes even with the Democratic supermajority. And the counter argument is, there's never just magically votes. What you have to do is whip votes, coerce people, give them incentives, do whatever you have to do to get them into compliance. Like that's your job 
as the president. And that's what Joe Biden ran on. Remember, he ran on his ability to build consensus among senators saying, oh, I've been there since the time of Methuselah and I can I can really work this crowd. Obviously, the tune we've been hearing for the last two years is a very different one, which is, you know, Joe Manchin is the president of the United States of America and there's nothing that can be done about it. Right. And the same song was sung during the Obama administration. So, you know, they've kind of, they've, they've, they're the boy who cried wolf too many times. And now you're basically owning the idea that even if we had a democratic supermajority, you can't deliver those votes. On top of which you have this namby pamby conversation about the filibuster where you won't commit to getting rid of that either. And there are some people on the left who are so cynical, perhaps rightly so, that they believe that even if you did have a supermajority and then got rid of the filibuster, some of those votes would magically disappear because there is this game of uh, rotating villain that's being played where there are always magically just a few votes too short to get anything meaningfully done for the American people, which is why you have people disaffecting altogether from either the Democratic Party. I don't know if you saw that story about, what was it, a million voters that, that flipped their registration? Wow. Can't possibly be that many. Was it that many? I don't remember now, but a heck of a lot. <laughs> um, and people choosing to identify as independent increasingly. Uh, there was a poll today that showed confidence that the Supreme Court is down from 36% to 25%. You have, I think, a not entirely irrational, uh, renewed interest in gun ownership, even from flanks of the left, including uh groups with historical interest in gun ownership, like, you know, Black Panther, Black Liberation type folks. And and the, the, that lack of confidence, that's all uh, evidence of the fact that people just are not putting much stake in the political system at all anymore. Had Bernie been president, what do you think Bernie would have done? I'd like to think that on some of the agenda items, and maybe we should go through them because I can't remember what the rest were off the top of my head, but on some of the agenda, agenda items that AOC articulated, you know, the kind of I can do it now things that he would be more open to doing those things now. I would also like to think, and Katie, you were there in the trenches with me on this, uh, you know, back in 2016, when the left was making arguments about the fact that Bernie Sanders was a better candidate than Hillary Clinton on women's issues. His record on women's issues had been consistent longer than Hillary Clinton. And of course, Joe Biden, who said when Roe was decided that he didn't care for the decision <laughs> and that, he, you know, he, when he called those groups like uh, Planned Parenthood establishment organizations, it was for this reason that they lend their credibility and their endorsements to people who would, I don't know, go and pick a pro-life candidate like Tim Kaine, who voted for all kinds of restrictions on abortions in, in Virginia. And that at the end of the day, Bernie is... Bernie's record indicates that he was much more inclined to actually follow through on promises to, if not successfully codify Roe, and make a big stink about why it was that certain politicians, despite being Democrats and fundraising off of this issue, were unwilling to do so. Now, I know a lot of people have been disappointed by Bernie Sanders' post-campaign, and it has caused people to reflect on whether or not he would have followed through in all of those ways, whether or not he could have given the opposition that he faces would face from Congress, and those are open questions, but it's hard to believe that the response from him would be as feckless as it is from the Biden administration when we know from his own record and statements that Biden himself has never been very committed to this issue. Bree, you mentioned um, AOC's agenda, and this is what uh, some of the things that she recommended be done. Entertain expansion of SCOTUS, end the Senate filibuster, repeal the Hyde Amendment, codify Roe, same-sex marriage, right to contraception, and interracial marriage. 
Yeah, the codifying of all of those privacy rights, it's kind of wild given what a clear win that has been for Democrats and the broad left and how public opinion is so wildly behind all of those things that they wouldn't, even if it's only sort of performative, go ahead and push for codification of those things. I mean, Biden could have said like those were number one kind of agenda items just to score the political point and, and kind of force Republicans on the back foot if they want to object to those things, which again, exactly. most of their base is for. Trump, wasn't he like the first uh, Republican president to endorse, maybe he's the first president period to endorse um, gay marriage throughout because everybody else, you know, Biden, it happened while he was already elected. There's some stat like that where Donald Trump has the distinction of being the first, <laughs> the first president off the bat or the, uh, who recognized those kinds of rights. And, and so I have a hard time imagining who would have fought it. But again, Democrats strategically don't ever seem to take those kinds of offensive moves. And to the extent that they do kind of push for legislation that is largely symbolic, it doesn't encompass the kind of populations or touch as many people as, it, as you would think they would want to shore up the base and really cement their identity as a party. Right. Feels ne- it feels negligent at this point in retrospect that they haven't d- done it and that, frankly, we weren't calling for it. Right. So she um, let me also get that's a summary of what she called for. Here's what she said. I'm going to quote her actual tweet. Restrain judicial review, expand the court, clinics on federal lands, expand education and access to Plan C, repeal Hyde, hold floor votes codifying Griswold, Obergefell, Lawrence, Loving, et cetera, vote on Escobar's bill protecting clinics. We can do it or at least try. I think that at least try thing is actually very symbolic. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not symbolic. It's very important because there is a, a lot of significance in just seeing people try to do things. I mean, just for their own political, even if it's just cynically to show that they're doing something. I yep. mean, even if they fail, just to watch them trying is pretty, I think, encouraging and would just be smart politics. So at least people could say, look, we tried this as opposed to we didn't even try this. And one of the interesting things that they that she suggests, and you just referred to this, is codifying uh, or holding floor votes on codifying Griswold, Obergefell, Lawrence, Loving, et cetera. Those are the, the Supreme Court decisions relating to privacy, same-sex marriage, uh, same-sex sex, I guess, uh, contraception, and uh, interracial uh, marriage, right? It used to be called miscegenation, right? Mm-hmm. So that overthrew anti-miscegenation laws. Mm-hmm. Um and of course, what that would do is embarrass or, or force people onto the record who would vote against that stuff, which would Correct. be useful. Correct. You know, I don't can't even think of the number of things that Republicans have fought for, things that they've aspired to that polled very poorly and they pushed them through anyway. And, you know, they have they have the perception of actually delivering for their base. I think they do deliver for their base. People right. people used to make fun of Trump and the wall like, oh, you didn't really build the wall and look at this half finished wall project. But for people who supported him, seeing that he tried and threw up bits of it, right. you know, their, their rationale was, oh, well, he was being obstructed, but look at him fighting and trying and we're going to support him harder so that he can fight and try harder. And the democratic side, it's like, it's like, it's a kind of, um, what's the opposite of a Chad, a cuck? I don't know. Sorry. Oh, can I yeah. say that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> They're cucking, um, they really cucked it simp, up. A simp? A simp? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's like a kind of a, um, like the, uh, a beta move. Yeah, a beta move, yeah. To be so um, worried about looking like a loser 
that you just act like a loser. Right. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> to, but it's like uh, to avoid fear, fear of it's like to avoid failure. It's about fear of failure. Right. But I actually right. think that maybe that's part of it. But I honestly think it's more that they don't want to change these things. I think that they want to be able to fundraise off of these things and scare people into voting uh, around these things. I think I do think that's largely it. I mean, I was listening to a very popular um, left podcast this week and they were very dismissive about this list of things from AOC because their perception was, I mean, none of it's going to happen anyway. And sometimes I am accused of being a defeatist leftist who would derail people from the political process because I am largely disaffected with the democratic party and don't invest significantly in electoralism anymore. And people characterize that as telling people to like sit it out and, you know, relinquish control over their fate and that that's very irresponsible. Au contraire, I'm very invested in other avenues outside of electoralism. And what I, what I was experiencing listening to this podcast was it felt like saying out of hand that nothing ASD is proposing will work is the kind of defeatism that I think can sometimes be un unconstructive because you, you, I mean, what, what is the alternative? I'm always happy to hear alternatives during, sorry, I don't mean to say it, but during the force of vote, I was happy to hear alternative, alternative plans, always, 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 but the like do nothing response, it is, isn't working for me. And I think that people don't understand the value of seeing people take a stand and people like AOC articulating what the options are, help grow the public imagination of what they should be asking for. Now, I, I'm even shocked that it hadn't really occurred to me before this moment that we should have been trying to codify all of those other privacy rights, right. privacy-based rights. You know, I'm heartened by the fact that we're now having an increasingly robust conversation about reforms to the Supreme Court. People are getting an education about what's possible in the Supreme Court that could potentially bear political effect. I, I don't know if five or 10 years ago, most Americans knew that the Supreme Court hadn't always been the, the same size, that there's nothing that requires it to be a certain size, that there have been, you know, not only successful changes to the size of the Supreme Court, but threats to change the size of the Supreme Court when we've seen political obstruction that's out of sync with the will of the people during FDR. You know, I don't know if people have understood that the Supreme Court claimed for itself the power of judicial review in Marbury, Marbury v. Madison, and that is also not something that is you know, written in the constitution in something that cannot be taken, you know, that, that can absolutely be taken away to very much limit and constrain the power of the court as AOC advocated for. And, you know, I tend not to go in for a lot of the liberal focus on, you know, the one six stuff, but I do think there might be some lanes of inquiry around the Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas stuff um, about rec recusal or, you know, um, those kinds of things AOC has also talked about impeaching justices. And yeah, some of it, I hear it and it sounds a little crazy to the ear or unlikely to the ear. And oh, is this going to be a waste of time? Should we be instead having hearings where we talk about uh, corporate price gouging and the like? And again, maybe, maybe that would on balance be better, but that's not to say that we shouldn't interrogate all of these options, frankly, given that we are really standing here with our backs up against the wall. And can you and, and of, of course, part of the reason that we're talking about those cases um, that we could codify about privacy laws and contraception and same sex marriage is because Clarence Thomas in his in his decision or his concurrence said that they should reconsider those. Now, he left yeah. out uh, loving. 
So conservatives will argue that loving is different because uh, it was it, it was decided on a due process Fourteenth Amendment um, separate uh, separate but equal uh, basis uh, disparate treatment. You know that you should be able to marry you know, a white person the same way you would be able to marry a black person. It wasn't exclusively reliant on a privacy right, which is true. But the case also does invoke the horror. And I talked about this actually in my Wednesday radar on the Hill, um, that the court in Loving invoked the, the horror of potential enforcement of anti-miscegenation laws and the idea that the state should be intruding into people's bedrooms. I know there's a scene in and it's a true scene from the, you know, the loving Beaver Virginia movie where they, the police raid their house and like bust, bust into their bedroom in the middle of the night. Like there was an understanding that there was a marriage bed was sacred. There were certain places that were sacred and people had a right to privacy. And that was the, that came out of, you know, Griswold, which was a contraception case where Connecticut tried to rely on a 16th century, uh, 17th century law to, prevent Planned Parenthood in the state from distributing contraceptives. And they arrested Griswold, who worked at Planned Parenthood. They arrested a doctor who worked there as well. They hauled them off to court. They gave them a one-day bench trial, and they fined them. You know, imagine that this is a world where you're hauling people off to jail, trying them without a jury, and fining them for the for, for handing out contraception, for distributing contraception, and, allow, and not preventing, and thereby not preventing families, married people, in that case, from making their own family planning decisions. I mean, most conservatives would see that as an overreach. Most conservatives would see that that's a real limitation on their freedom to be able to make relationships with their partners, relationships with their doctors, make the most intimate kinds of personal decisions. But suddenly when it's characterized in the way that it's been characterized by, I gotta say, the six Catholic judges on the Supreme Court that made this decision, Six, <laughs> six Catholic judges made a decision that seems very much in line with their religious beliefs and not at all in line with Supreme Court precedent. We have to ask a question here if we are having an establishment issue. You know, are we are we in a world now where we are giving up these very basic freedoms and, and privacy rights that for decades now, people across the political aisle have understood our natural natural rights um, because the Federalist Society has been successful in putting these people on the bench over the last few decades. And I, I should also say this because it's on my mind because of my radar. There has also been a lot of conversation about the fact that a privacy right is not written in the text of the Constitution, but that also is a real misunderstanding of the Ninth Amendment, which the Founding Fathers had the foresight to write and which says, hey guys, I know we wrote down some great amendments, but just in case you income poops in the future can't figure this out. This is not a complete list. There are other rights. Like we couldn't think of them all. Like there's time constraints here. <laughs> we got to get this bad boy out. We're on deadline. But like, this is a non-exhaustive list. And of course there are rights that the states cannot infringe upon that are beyond those rights that we have enumerated here. It, it lists, it accounts for, accommodates unenumerated rights. And so the idea that privacy right like isn't in the constitution, there's a million and one things that aren't in the constitution and that have never been codified that we all take for granted. Not to mention the second, <laughs> the way that the second amendment has been read now is wildly outside of the text of the constitution. And I'm willing to even accept that, you know, 
some of the ways that the law has been extended to all kinds of weapons and things that never existed back in the day might be realistically read into the Constitution appropriately. But you can't sit here and say the Constitution accommodated machine guns when they hadn't even invented bullets yet. They were using muskets and like front loading those bad boys. You can't say that the Constitution accommodates that, but that doesn't accommodate the idea that the state shouldn't bust into your bedroom and tell you to stop having anal sex or to stop using condoms or to stop having sex with your Asian partner. To stop having anal sex with a condom on with your Asian partner. You want to combine those all into one thing, yeah. As a lawyer, what do you say to people who argue, okay, yes, there are Christian fundamentalists on the Supreme Court. They were influenced by that. But that Roe versus Wade was a flawed ruling to begin with. This was only a matter of time. It had serious oversights. It was a constitutional overreach. What do you say as a you know scholar of the law to that argument? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, Bree, thank you so much for your time. This was great. It's a, an enormous pleasure. I'm sorry it took so long, but I'm glad I made it here. Yeah. And I hope to see you both over on Bad Faith soon. Definitely. And also check out Bree's Collins, which she has a great show on Colin. It's called The Debrief which I didn't understand at first. I was like, okay, no that's, that's, that's it. It's, it's the debrief, B-R-I-E, her name in the word yeah, brief. It's right in there. So I do debrief You're sessions. so good at, pu- at puns. They're, they're marathon sessions. I tend to go for hours because the conversations are so, are so good and the callers are so insightful and generous with their time and personal lives. Yeah. And I do them the day that Bad Faith episode drops episodes drop. So on Monday and Thursday evenings, usually around 8 p.m. Eastern. And it's great because it doesn't conflict with any of ours. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Brie. Of course. It's my pleasure. Take care. Well, that was great. Great to hear from Brie. She's such a great guest. She's so lovely to talk to, isn't she? She has a fantastic uh, screen presence. Yes. I really noticed that seeing her and the crew on Rising, they all do a great job. Yeah, they do. Yeah. I like that because it was a little bit like interviewing her. She was interviewing us. But yeah, um, she kind of turned this into an episode of Bad Faith where she was asking us questions. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. If you're listening to the podcast, please rate and review us. If you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe and also share and hit like. You can check us out every Monday morning live on youtube.com slash useful idiots. And then you can come to our call-ins right after at 11 a.m. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.